Hello and welcome to the PD Performance Podcast. It is a special episode of the podcast. It is the final episode of season two, and it is a big one for you guys today. We have Matt McInnes Watson on of Plus Plyos. Matt is a former international high jumper, and he is a researcher. He is currently studying for a PhD in sports science, and he also has experience as a PE teacher in the UAE. Matt has been coaching multi-events and jumps for a number of years now, and he is known as the Plyo guy on social media. He has been blowing up Instagram of late, putting out some great content, and he has just finished his first seminar in Ireland in Carlo, which we spoke about briefly during this chat. We talked about what surprised him about the process of presenting at that seminar to Irish coaches and athletes. We talked about his vision for his company Plus Plyos and where he sees it going in the future. We talked about how he sees appropriate to implement plyometrics into a training program for team sport athletes and what can be achieved in doing so. We talked about the complicated nature of Gaelic games and he certainly did a great job of picking apart my process in relation to plyometrics, change of direction and speed coaching, which I was very, very happy for him to do. And we also talked about more specific plyos and using Bondarchuk's exercise classification system or hierarchy for choosing the appropriate plyometric progressions for the athlete based on their position. So a super episode to round off what has been a fantastic season. The podcast has gone from strength to strength. I hope you've been enjoying the episodes and I hope you enjoy this one. And as always, if you do enjoy it, please remember to like it, share it and send it. What is up, guys? This podcast is kindly sponsored by Sam Portland's Sports Speed Certification. Now, that is a tongue twister. Sam is rolling out the certification with the goal to help athletes to find the information around speed coaching and how to implement the practices to improve your athlete's speed over time. Sam is also offering all PD Performance listeners a 15% discount on the certification. Just use the code PDPSPEED and message Sam over at sam at coachsportland.co.uk or message him on his social media channels, which are at coachsportland. What you will get access to is all of the materials, videos and guides and tools of how to make your athletes faster. Those are all available online. You will also get access to a free live event Sam is going all over the world, putting in live events and delivering presentations to a number of coaches that is included and you'll get 15% off the whole lot. As well as that, you'll get a one hour long coaching call with Sam four weeks after the event to follow up so that he can help you to implement the strategies with your athletes and perfect your speed coaching process. So once more, that is PDP speed is your code message Sam get on board and hope to see you all at an event season two of the PD performance podcast is kindly sponsored by output sports output sports make athlete testing and monitoring simple portable and efficient their single sensor tool enables the measurement of over 160 exercises spanning agility speed power mobility reactive strength and much more The tech is utilized by the FA, Leinster Rugby, Limerick Hurling and your very own PD Performance, to name but a few. 
but also gyms, clinics and schools around the UK and Ireland and they're now branching out into the States as well. As a listener of this podcast, you can get 5% off with the code PT5, P-E-T-E-Y 5. So get onto Output Sports as soon as you possibly can because I am achieving great things with my sensor that I've been using so far this season. I've had great buy-in with my athletes and I've been using it myself too. And I gotta say, it's a lot of fun. So contact Output Sports with code PT5 to avail of your discount. Matt McInnes Watson, we only get the big guns in here to finish off and round off season two. So I have luckily got you in as a result of some quite astute social media work over the last few days. But you were in Ireland last week and I was unfortunate enough to miss you. So how is it being back in the UK at the moment? UK and Ireland, obviously, for our Irish listeners. And uh, what have you been up to? Yeah, so yeah, it was a, by the way, it was a, that's a, an introduction that's far too over who I am as a person. So <laughs> so as we just said before we uh, started recording, you know, we better make it a good one being the last one of the season. So no, I appreciate you having me on. Um, it's great to, great to talk shop and stuff. Um, so yeah, yeah, we were in Carlo in Ireland um, this past weekend, which was, yeah, awesome experience, some fantastic group of coaches that came together from all over the place we had guys come from Derry which is like over three hour drive to the, like some people had you know they'd come out gone out their ways to spend that time with us on the weekend and yeah I was really grateful for it because I got a ton of experience from it myself and yeah I, I use it's all about all about the attendee kind of learning at something like this. And you're like, I don't think you understand just how much, especially when like for someone like myself who, and I've done quite a lot of educational based workshops and stuff, but to have something that's a bit more professional and um, I'd say just better put together is a hell of a ever learning experience for me, um, which was, yeah, which was really cool. So yeah, we've been back in the UK, back from the Middle East um, since the end of September now, which is, yeah, nice transition back for us to focus full time on kind of what we're what we're trying to get moving with with our business. And yeah, it's it's been nice. It's been nice to obviously see see family and stuff, and stuff like that, um, and be back in you know the home country. But the weather is yeah, you know it's not as nice. And uh, and it, and when you when you when you attempt to try and make social media posts and you're like, okay, like I don't necessarily have a facility that I'm like that cool with at the moment i'm like it's like figuring out a few relationships with people that i can go and maybe film something and uh i sent to one of my friends that i've never owned a public gym membership in my life like just three it just so happened to be that it's been like i was an athlete and i was in in a, a higher education facility and i kept going to that facility and working with the same coach for like five years after university and then and then i was coaching myself and i have like a facility that I was working out of. So I would always train there and it's, and it's been the same. And we, <laughs> we had one in our compound and there was never anyone in it. I went into a public gym the other day and I was like, Oh wow, this is a, this is a completely different beast. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh it's nice to, to change things up. I, I, I kind of do like that feeling, you know, you get set in your ways of doing certain things and you're like, cool, well, you know, we've got to figure some new things out. And yeah, it's been nice to be back and, uh, and especially to connect with a lot more people. It's been really good. Nobody prepares you for 
when you've been going through that process for so long, that anxiety that comes with when you go into a public gym and there's a hundred people in there and you're like, oh my God, I have no control over this situation. And there's just too many people that I can't structure my session in the way that I want to structure because I don't have the same availability of equipment and space that I would like. I'm conscious of not being in this person's way or am I in this person's way? I need to use that next. Should I go over and put my stuff next to that now? And I've been through that myself, so I can completely empathize with it, with you on that. And I found myself, now I always uh, plan my day around the gym and get into the gym in the middle of the day when it's quietest so that I can train. And I've it's there's been a couple of instances where I've gone in at 6 p.m. and I've left because I'm like, that's too much for me today. Yeah, yeah, you uh, you you put a load of weight on a, on let's say you're about to do a squat, you put a load of weight on, and then you just turn around and some guys taking a twenty kg off of it, <laughs> and you're like, hang on, hang on, hang on, like you've got, it's just, it's like a free for all in there. Um, but anyway, yeah, you know these funny little experiences. Maybe I need to get myself to a, a private facility or something like that. It's a bit bit more quiet. <laughs> maybe good Maybe good things will come when you're outside your comfort zone. And it sounds like you're outside your comfort zone for sure, running the seminar in Carlo at the weekend. What were the lessons that you took from doing that? Like, did it flow as well as you would like it to flow? Or did it go in the directions that you intended to go in? Or did you go off in different tangents, which might be a good thing in a way? Yeah, there was definitely some good tangents that we went on. Um, I think the number one bit was, so we we had like a introduction to the science of pliers um, and going into my system, how that fits it, how basically how my system always relates back to what I class as like the plyometric landing sequence and understanding each phase of a movement and how you, how manipulating that in different ways allows you to structure like a, a spectrum of different movements um and then we then related back to that in the second theory after we'd sandwiched that with a practical mm-hmm. and in this in the second theory we looked at programming and ways in which when you manipulate that landing sequence what are the changes and adaptations and then how you'll look to program those things in at certain times in the year and stuff um and I knew that the practical element was going to be a good part of it, but I think that the value in it, it seemed like it was a lot higher than my expectation. Maybe, maybe, maybe the attendees think differently. And I'm, I'm going to ask for some, look at some feedback, things that they might change and stuff maybe over the next couple of weeks, um, which I'd be really thankful to, you know, just get a, a feel for what they've said that I've had great feedback just in general about how much they enjoyed it and just a different outlook to dynamic movement and stuff. But that for me is, um, you know, how how can I manipulate another one that might be slightly different? And we spend a little bit more, not necessarily, we did a lot of moving. I got the guys to like, it's my, I think it's my job as someone that's done this for 12, 13 years to, to really show people what these movements should feel like and the sensations that they should get, because I don't think not, not enough coaches, have truly gone through plyos and one of the kind of big messages that I kind of gave to people when they left was go and do like three months of plyos, go and do six months of plyos and understand what changes, um, understand that there aren't necessarily things that you can measure in terms of change, but the sensational effects 
the feelings of just having a little bit more freedom of movement, being able to kind of unleash a bit more aggression in terms of how you hit the ground and how that then relays across maybe if you do regular sprint work, maybe if you're lifting, how does that transfer? Because there's a lot of transfer in it. And just things, like I said, that you can't necessarily put your finger on and say, this is because we improved this output by X amount. It's There's so much to it that, um, yeah, I think doing a solid block of that sort of stuff is really, really valuable. So, you know, get opening their eyes to some of the movements and they're like, oh, this is how this is actually meant to be done and how it should actually feel. And they're like, ah, okay. Maybe the way that I'm coaching it, maybe the way that I'm portraying it to my athletes just needs to be said in different ways. I need to be critical about what happens, um, movement to movement, and yeah, and just understand the intent behind things. I've got some great feedback from you or from the seminar for sure anyway, because one of my interns was down at it and he said that he found it like mind blowing. Uh, he he just he's questioning how he's been doing things as well. And he, he also said that he had some extreme doms the next two days from the physical aspect because they did far more than what they had bargained for. So I think they got a lot out of it. And I was really pissed off that I couldn't make it down. But I, I was interested to kind of pick your brain and ask you, was there any questions posed to you around the physical aspect of it that made you question your process or refine your process or that challenged you a little bit and, and you thought, well, maybe I actually do need to go away and think about this a little bit more. I think that there, you know, if, if the, if a group of people haven't necessarily been exposed to that much stuff, I think it's sometimes you get a lot of like almost blankness from a lot of people like, mm. Oh, I'm, I'm processing this. I'm not sure what I feel. I'm not sure why I'm feeling like this. So that also made me question a few things. And you're like, are they getting out of it what what I want them to get out of it? Are they understanding things how I want them to understand things? And it and it goes back to a lot of pedagogical stuff that I you know dug into as a teacher over the last six or seven years. And that if you aren't if you aren't questioning someone's understanding in a way that you know, you're not directly saying, do you get this? <laughs> like giving a yes or no, really pulling things out of them ultimately has to be your feedback in things. Um, because if not, you just go past this. No, I'm fine. It's like asking someone, how you feeling? Say, yeah, fine. When deep down, you know, there's a thousand things going on in their head. Um, it, it's, yeah, all, all part of pedagogy, in, in my opinion, in terms of being able to gain understanding of someone's learning and stuff but i think some of the i know that i put myself out there a little bit um when it come to like return to play stuff with because we had quite a few um like therapists or orthopedic guys um and you know i put myself out there in terms of bringing about how i look at um a like a plyometric or a landing continuum like how do we go from not being you know maybe some slightly ballistic movements to actually landing and taking off like how do we start at stage one and how do I know that when I'm you know change a certain movement or whether actually the movement that I'm using at stage one is truly what I think is stage one and I I've put together something that's gradually kind of in my opinion it's going to, going to become a large part of our business and of my practice in general but 
you know, I was questioned questioned on a few things where, you know, it's like, how do I know someone is ready for that stage? And like, what, you know, what numbers or arbitrary numbers do you need to ensure that someone's ready for that? Which again, I think is, is very clinical in the way that it's done. So, I, it, but it, again, it's hard to tell someone in the orthopedic world, well, that's not how I would look at someone. Like I, I would put a lot of what I do in perceived feelings and mm-hmm. getting a lot more feedback from them verbally than necessarily it all being about well how much isokinetic strength did they have limb to limb um and actually and actually I, I have done i did some random reflecting this morning as i was getting showered and uh and i was thinking about a return to play from um achilles surgery and the reason why you need to keep doing plyos on your other leg or keep doing landing and dynamic movement on your other leg whilst you are, you know, a day after surgery. Do you know what I mean? Like as soon as you've done, you should be doing work on that, that non-injured site or non-injured side straight away, in my opinion. And the reason why, like things were coming up in terms of, well, I know so many cases where people pick up things like tendinopathy after when they return back to, okay, this is this injured site and I'm bringing it back in and they get tendonitis on the other leg. And you're like, why? So, well, we've also offloaded the other side and it's like, do we cut out that sort of stuff? So I see a lot of that, like, well, why would you be doing that? Well, there's value in it. There's value in maybe you're overcompensating and maybe you need higher preparation stuff. So there's been a lot of reflection in that sort of thing. And, you know, maybe this is a larger part of where my learning should go in the next few months or next few years um, of understanding the orthopedic side and the route out of the first few steps. Because, you know, when you're a, when you're a coach, SNC coach, whatever you might be, if there's a handover process from someone else that's medically trained, a lot of the time there's a, there's a kind of, oh, well, I guess they're, they're ready. And now it's my turn, mm. but there needs to be a smooth process. And I actually think that the people that are going to be the best versed for that are the medically trained people with the tools of understanding the stuff that we went through on the weekend with understanding, you know, what is a two foot bilateral movement look like in terms of loading it? in comparison to a two foot bilateral movement where the legs are exchanging. How does that compare then to a unilateral movement bounding from one leg to the other? And how does that then move to hopping? You know, and where does sprinting fit in that? Where does, you know, tempo based running fit into all of these places? Not a lot of people understand that. They don't understand the true ground reaction forces that come with it. And the reasons why we have that intimidation to strike the ground. So, yeah, that it's got the cogs in my head working kind of tenfold at the moment. And I'm not necessarily sure that it was like a negative thing, but it definitely made me reflect on it. And yeah, I think there's a lot of value in terms of what I can bring to people in terms of teaching that stuff. But also I've got to learn a little bit more on the back end of things, I think. It's definitely not a negative anyway. Like I think definitely in the rehab side of things and it's, a testament to them that they are focused on that side of things like the metrics approach to return to play because they're looking at specific quantities but sometimes when you go down a rabbit hole of chasing quantities all the time then you neglect the fact to actually look and understand the quality of what is happening and that is where where you were kind of linking together by the sounds of things in the seminar and in the practical aspect you were helping them to have the coaching eye Uh, developed to a necessary standard that they can actually understand what they're looking at first 
prior to then looking at the quantity. And then you're also talking about the most important component of that, which is the individual component, because there is no point in progressing somebody back to a certain level of return to play or, or, or plyometric progressions when their perception of is that they're not able to do that, no matter what the quantity is, because that is coaching. That is the relationship that you have with them and how you motivate them and deliberate with them and get them back into the necessary aspects of training that are going to hopefully, hopefully improve their performance. And we're talking a lot about quantities and measuring things and then things not being measurable and people always go down one side or the other. Well, not always, but a lot of the time, whereas it's not that simple. It's both aspects. And I know when you go to a seminar or you're presenting, people are always going to look for the simplest answer. And that's probably what they were doing. They were looking for the simplest answer to the question. But unfortunately, there is no one true answer to the question, which is what you're always going to be chasing anyway, by the sounds of things. And that's what you're going to have to reflect and refine because you're going to now probably think, right, if I am going to put a quantity on this, what should that quantity or range be? Um, and you're going to probably, I would imagine by the sounds of things, try to pair that with different levels of your progressions in terms of how you're breaking down the movement and reintegrating people back to the movement, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And is that the way that you see plus players progressing in the future? Um, is that the way that the business is going to go? Is it going to be providing more resources for athletes in terms of, I would say, just return to play, but return to play is return to performance and performance is all a spectrum. So is it giving athletes the tools to, to improve their performance or is it going to be a combination of that and giving the resources to the coach to guide athletes towards improved performance? Or... It, like as I said, it could be neither of those. It could be something else completely different. <laughs> I think, yeah. I mean, I mean, we ask ourselves these questions on a daily basis. Like, what, which direction do you go in? And ultimately, I think it's going to be geared more towards coaches because I think when you're when you're looking at these sorts of const, uh, like complex things that like we're talking discussing, you know, what what can you measure? What can you not measure? What should you be measuring? What should you be getting feedback on? It's really hard to get that through a program online. So, and, you know, you do you run into potential issues down the road where, you know, one person has skipped a few stages that ultimately a, a coach should have hold them accountable to in a, in a certain way. So I think giving coaches the tools to do this you're never always going to fend that off totally because you you i think nowadays you've got so many more athletes that are quite knowledgeable and they're mm -hmm. they chase information and, and you know i'm i'm so for that it's brilliant that athletes are getting a lot more um intuitive about things they question things they ultimately want the best for themselves um, and i'm not saying that people that prior to the, the boom of the internet weren't wanting that but i think there's a bit more accountability for them because they see yeah they see themselves integrating into a little bit more of a of the coaching world um so yeah i think the coaching side is is probably more preferable for us um and, and teaching coaches to you know give them the skills to like you say see movement address movement 
remedy the movement um, and ultimately develop that movement skill capacity or whatever it might be so that, as you said, again, the spectrum of return to play and performance is just completely smooth. There's not, oh, yeah, we've finished, we've finished rehab and now we're into performance training. I, I, I think that is why you see the distinction in rehab and where plyos enter things. It's like, right, now we've, now we've done the rehabilitational stuff and let's move into plyometrics or let's move into dynamic movement. And I, I kind of throw that against the wall for people and say, you should be doing plyos realistically from the moment that you can land. It doesn't need to be depth jumps from 10 feet. It just needs to be a landing and a takeoff. And I, and I said, like I said at the weekend, it likely cool. never needs to be depth jumps. From 10 feet. <laughs> <laughs> I exaggerate. Sorry, but if you listen to this, don't don't depth jump from 10 feet. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I said at the weekend, call it what you like. Call it plyometrics. Call it landing dynamics. Whatever. I don't I don't care about the time frame that you spend on the ground. You need to stress the system with the stimulation of a landing mm-hmm. and build up the capacity to then make that transitional from landing and take to taking off however you want to look at it but it can be as slow as small in amplitude as possible but it starts from realistically day one uh, you know after you've kind of crossed that boundary into oh i can i can maybe do like a bit of a jog i can i can start to what does it feel like to kind of just bounce on the spot well let's try a landing like how does that stimulate that tissue it's reframing the old kind of negative uh, framing of exercise and rehab in that this is what you can't do and changing that to what can you do and let's do what you can do when you can do it. And it might sound like that's an aggressive approach. And in some ways it is, but that is the value of having a practitioner that is clued into the way to do it more conservatively if that makes sense even though that's a bit of a paradox um and that's what you're trying to elicit by putting all this information out there is you're trying to help people to understand what is effective and efficient movement and what it feels and looks like because it needs to look a certain way for well it doesn't need to but it should look a certain way for the coach and it should feel a certain way for the athlete and it's the interaction between the two that's going to get us to improved performance and hopefully return back to play post injury post surgery post whatever um but it sounds like you're breaking it down very simply there as well and it it doesn't sound like there was anything uh too complex in it it was just probably diving into the weeds a little bit more than people usually would which is a useful thing because you're not really you're not really presenting anything that is in effect wholeheartedly new information that's going to change their process. You're actually just delving deeper and focusing more on specific aspects of the process to refine it and make it better and make it more fluid along that rehab to performance spectrum by the sounds of things. And it sounds like a lot of what you see yourself is people just throw plyos into the into the mix and then don't think about them but you're kind of saying and that's what what your message is is why the hell would you not think about it let's think about it because it's very very important that we think about it so that we can select the right um the right progressions to hopefully guide the athlete towards improved performance yeah yeah and and also seeing that it is 
90% of it is probably not built around you building physical components to the body of the athlete. And you're actually building far more skill-based learning into that development from, you know, whether you've been injured or whether you're just a beginner athlete, mm-hmm. but it, it becomes more about the skill and the, the learning neurological side of, of landing and taking off and the physical component you know it just trundles along as you move I I think over you know over a two three year period like I I don't think that you're a lot of your changes like when people people come onto plus buyers and they said when when do the fundamental changes come in and I'm like well around 12 to 15 weeks you start to see neurological skill development that's coming in Mm -hmm. and those are the things that are improving your timing improving your stiffening ability whether those things have actually changed physical components like whether they have actually stiffened the tendons whether they have changed the muscles capacity to do something probably arbitrary at that stage but we're tapping into recruiting you know motor units like i said we are timing things better Mm -hmm. so those attributes that you already have within you we're just improving that capacity and you could probably play around with that you know working until about six to nine months in which people just don't think about they think about building back that physical. physical elastic capacity and i'm like well you probably all got some pretty elastic capacity in you it's just you know it, you're it's not, you're not able pretty, to use it yeah it's just teaching you how to use it and, and getting a better connection with the brain building back in kind of proprioceptive skills and and ultimately if you're coming back from injury mm. that that emotional kind of psychosocial emotional stuff that comes with injury problems you know when you've let's say you've ruptured the keys or you've done something to your acl that tendency and being kind of just not having that freedom of saying do you know what i can slam my leg into the ground and i have confidence that i'm going to come out the back of it there's such a relationship with that and being really tentative um and i think again it's just not taught people just don't look at movement like that so yeah Hopefully my strange little nuances into it is helping people achieve what they want in that. No, hundred percent. And I see that in coaches and in athletes all the time. And I'm interested in it and in changing that perspective. But what I see typically, and I want to ask you, do you think that that perspective or that mindset is a lot easier to achieve given that you have the background in track and field where I think these physical components of performance, such as uh, speed, power, jump height, uh, control, they are taught about as skill. Whereas in the alternate world, and I'm sure a lot of the people that were down at seminar were coming from team sports, all of those aspects of the team sport are not thought about as skill. They're taught about as just strictly physical components that we have to develop. So do you think that is where that has come from in your own psyche? And do you think that is a useful way that people should reframe things in relation to their coaching? And how do you think we achieve change in younger coaches? Do we need to get them more exposed to track and field type events? And should that be something that athletes should be exposed to maybe potentially in their off season in the future yeah it's a that's a great question i think it's a question that i kind of subconsciously ask myself all the time like when i'm dealing with like what is it that they the you know 
whether I've seen soccer players move, whether I've seen basketball players move, or even like with Gaelic games and stuff, like what what do we see in them that's happening in the sport that they they aren't getting that the the track community is getting? And I think it is down to like you are everything that you do and every you know like when I I'd co- I coach high jump um, I coach the multi events and stuff. And like you take high jump, you could be doing seven strides and taking off. And that's your whole event. So you better be good in those seven strides and you better use them as effectively as possible. What What's a shame on the flip side of things is let's, let's say you're taking Gaelic football or something, is that we don't care about every movement that someone does. We just assume this kind of randomness that, will improve and you'll get better and those physical capacities will come and um and with time the game will improve what we're doing we know that that's not the truth we know that from day one we should have been critical of our athletes because if my if my let's say my my speed is quicker than yours or my ability to change direction is better than yours but when it gets into the depths of a game and we're let's say an hour into a game or 45 minutes into a game and my sub-maximal capacity is still going to be higher than yours. So my ability to do things, you know, if I've built that conditioning into, into my training, which it sounds like Gaelic sports, there's a hell of a lot of a schedule to it. So everyone's conditioned to do it. It's just the quality of movement that comes with it becomes so, you know, however you want to see it, bastardized, damaged, whatever. Um, so I think a little bit of learning from the track community is good. I also think that you need to get to the right track community. Yeah, it's true because they, so, some of the others will go down the same route as the Gaelic football in terms of volume and conditioning. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and not understand the neuromuscular. I, I think the best place to, and, and it's completely biased, is to move towards the jumps community and the throws community because they're normally pretty good. Um, when it comes to understanding the neuromuscular side of things. Because if you're too tired, trying to take off is pretty impossible. (laughs) So you know that your athletes have to be fresh for those periods in the week where it matters the most. So, you know, even those basics, like I taught a little bit of that at the weekend, understand where your most demanding parts of the week are. Obviously, that's going to be in, you know, with Gaelic sports, if you're playing the actual sport and you've got a game, that's going to be most demanding. Mm -hmm. So when you place your other highly demanding neuromuscular activities, it's going to be, you have to scatter it around to make sure that you're getting the most out of it. Because if you don't, the likelihood for chronic injury is much higher. The likelihood for inefficient movement is higher. The likelihood to build in poor tendencies is higher. You know, if if you're doing neuromuscularly, like high work, let's say you're trying to do pliers and you're doing it under fatigue, your tendency to build in like slower takeoffs or a more muscular driven based takeoff is like tenfold because you constantly drill that into the body. You constantly change that ground contact that you're trying to achieve. Let's say that you're trying to jump for height as an example. But every time you put down your foot and try and jump for height, if you put 0.05 of a second onto every single takeoff for the whole of a season, because you put that the day after you're you're playing a game, well, what are you expecting to do? You're probably going to take off in that in that way for the the rest of eternity if you don't mop it up. So it's it's a tough one because obviously finding time is a is a big thing within team sports, but 
I think you don't necessarily have, I mean, maybe this is, this is the revolution of, of my stuff is to, is, is to expose people to more things that maybe come from track and field that aren't necessarily track and field. But I'd always say was, I'd always say to someone, go shadow uh, a multi-events coach for six months. <laughs> just go down to one session a week and just watch, see what they do, see how critical of movement they are. Um, and yeah, you, you never see tactical team sports coaches say, why are you striking the ball like that? Like th- that leaves the scenario, right? It leaves the conversation when someone's what, 12, 13 years old. Do you even do you, do you carry on teaching someone how to strike a ball properly at that age? Do you carry on teaching them how to? It's very little, isn't it? It's always about tactics, then. Yeah. Or, well, the only time <laughs> the only time that they might do that is if it's a serious like outlier and like you're seriously alternate or different to everybody else. But like the likelihood is, if you are a serious outlier, you've figured out how to do it that way as a result of being more successful doing it that way so if you try to change it now um you might get worse before you get better um that's something that i kind of pride myself on as well though is that when i'm coaching i don't look for the one true perfect movement because they're all going to move in different ways because they're all different athletes and that is something that comes with gaelic games and rugby is they are all different shapes and sizes. So they're all going to have different movement solutions, but it sounds like from your perspective there, the major bugbear or the major thing that perplexes you about Gaelic games is well, one partly trying to fit things in, in terms of time and in terms of schedule, but two people saying that they don't have the time to implement it when it's probably a lot less than what they think, they need to dedicate to it to see the benefits in doing so. Yeah. I always get the question, you know, how do I integrate, how do I continue to sprinkle in plyometrics in season? And I said, well, start from day one in the off season to make sure that you're ready for it in the in season is your number one thing. If you're in season right now and you don't do plyometrics, don't try and integrate it. <laughs> yeah. But like, do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's like saying, it's like saying in the middle of an in-season, right, I want to add in, let's say, bilateral strength. Are you going to get it in? The likelihood is probably not if you're not already doing something. Mm-hmm. So, again, my my thought process is around the skill development over a long period of time. It's about, it doesn't matter whether these guys get that much faster or they jump that much further or they get a little bit more efficient. If they are improving you know, 1% over a whole season in terms of how fast they're getting in and out of a ground contact, then that's amazing because they do 3,000 contacts in a Gaelic football game. Mm-hmm. Like that, That's how my mind thinks about things. So just a an exposure or small dosage to something is what I see as something that's impactful and maintaining your ability to do those movements season to season is important so that I don't go here's my two months of plyometric training. Now I'm going to play my game because that ultimately is going to keep me plyometrically fit or however you sit. I always get that in basketball. Well, the the game, there's enough plyometrics in it. I'm like, well, they get into the off season and they still move like shit. So what's happened? They haven't been doing plyometric training. So that's why we're employed. That's our job. They don't get enough from the game. Like if they got enough from the game, then we wouldn't be in a job. Um, And I think we're achieving positive change, but like 
you raise a good point there as well in that initially you had said if we get one percent better per year that's fantastic but with some athletes it's not about getting one percent better it's about maintaining the level that you're already at and then that will hopefully afford the sport coach the opportunity to focus on the technical and tactical aspects because they won't need as much time to focus on the physical or they won't have as much time out through injury. Um, and they'll hopefully have the same levels of speed, um, eccentric strength, uh, strength, power, explosiveness, and they won't have to think about it as much because they've maintained it. So it is essentially, especially in Gaelic games from uh, experience, it's about a microdose, but a quality microdose at that um, in season. But in order to do that, you've got to... You've got to stress the system in the offseason and the preseason when the sport demands aren't at the same level as they will be in season. Because when you get into the season, as I'm sure you've heard, they can be playing 35 games in a season, playing two games in a week. And there is very little opportunity for developmental style training. But there is still some opportunity for maintenance, I suppose. And that's when you sprinkle it in. And that's when effective programming, planning, coaching, listening and monitoring comes in useful because you need to be able to listen to the athletes and you need to be able to look at what the plan has been over time and change the plan if you need to um, and then give them what they need um, as opposed to what the sport coaches want, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And... And also not being like I, I say that you want exposure throughout the whole like calendar year. Mm. But I, I've had scenarios where I've had to expose them every ten days to something, and that's enough. You're keeping those qualities there. Speed starts to really diminish after about two to three weeks. You you can effectively see that change if you're not getting a regular dosage of speed when you've been doing a good background of it biometrics is very similar in that um and you start to to lose that um that anticipation for the ground a little bit and it's the more you get through that the more obvious it becomes in terms of your stability on the ground and when you whip that foot down are you stable and quick and you're not consciously thinking about it you're just moving and propelling yourself along so don't be scared for it to be 10 days. If you've got two games in a week, what if you were just to skip that week, do something that's far more kind of rudimentary and then you've got a little bit of a hit the following week? Well, that that needs to be the decision that's been made for some athletes. And I think like, isn't it, Dan Faf said that with Rutherford, he only did a dose every 10 to 14 days or something and yeah. he, won, he won an Olympic medal doing it that way. So... Well, he- yeah, I think some of the best stories about Rutherford is that for about seven or eight years, he was training six days a week for two or three hours a day. And was that guy that was, should have, would have, you know, could have. Mm. And when Dan came across before London, the ultimate big shift in things was that he trained three days a week. Could not handle back-to-back-to-back days and understood what, what was continually injuring Greg and stopping him from developing season to season. And all he needed was two or three years where he was constantly able to get exposure to things for him to develop. It didn't need to be the perfect storm because he definitely got a few injuries along the way, 
from kind of 2012 to 2016. But in, I'd say from 2013, he did get injured, but 2014, 15, and then into the 2016 Olympics, those three years were really solid for him because he continually had that exposure. Um, and it could be every 14 days. It could be every 10 days. Um, so, yeah, I, again, we, we also assume that everyone should be training far more than they actually need to. And what you're doing in that training session just needs to be better. <laughs> yeah, that's like I, I got around the coaches <laughs> this year with it. No, well, it, it's it's correct. And I think there has been a shift. And I've had conversations with GAA coaches um, of late because one of my podcasts where I talked about in-season GAA, I, I just talked about our process and how in the past they would have expected the athletes to train six days a week or perform six days a week. Um, so train five and play one. So they would have done pitch, gym, pitch, gym, game, and maybe another gym or, or another pitch. And I just came with fresh eyes coming from a rugby uh, scenario or a rugby background. And I said, well, why the hell don't you just do the gym on the same day as the pitch and take tomorrow off? And they were like, I don't know. I, we just never thought about it that way. Um, so then we started doing that. And then players were getting time away um, from the pitch, which was massive, less stress. It was making the quality of training better. They Their recovery was better on the days off. And it didn't become a burden for them to get to the pitch six days a week. It was something that they enjoyed, which is very important in an amateur sport like GAA. When these guys have been on site since six o'clock this this morning until five o'clock then they rock up to train and they want don't want to be there six days a week they want their time playing the sport although it's at an elite level they want it to be enjoyable number one so you need to give them enough that it's enjoyable but not too much that they're not enjoying it anymore which is probably the difference i suppose when you, you compare gaelic games to association football or um rugby because they're I suppose that's what perplexes the British coaches I talk to when they're like, I'm like, well, some of them are playing two sports and they're like, why are they playing two sports? Like, and what are they getting paid? And I'm like, they're getting paid nothing. And I don't know why they're playing two sports. I'm trying to get them away from doing that. Um, but yeah. like, I, I, I now I'll just give you what we did in terms of plyos um, because we did do quite an intensive phase at the start. Well, I shouldn't say intensive. We did an extensive building into intensive um, yeah. of a lot of players. And I am lucky in that our head coach or sport coach in the early preseason and off season doesn't involve a lot of technical or tactical coaching because he doesn't want to, uh, he terms it burn out the athletes from a sporting context. So he solely would focus on movement skills and movement qualities, which is, Deadly as an SNC coach, um, because it makes my job a lot easier. It gives me more to do. So we built that and we actually built it indoors because of the Irish weather for a lot of time, which was great in terms of developing stiffness, reactivity and tolerance. And then when we got to the pitch, even though it's a long season, uh, we just moved towards doing our plyos pre-session um, and we would vary our days, uh, green and red days, we'd have yellow days as well in terms of primers but on our green days we typically would focus on i know you don't like these terms but i'm going to use them anyway <laughs> uh, e extensive plyos and then on our red days we would do more intensive focus and then on our yellow days which are primer sessions we might do a lower volume of intensive plyos now 
I know what you're thinking and I'm not actually coaching the movement, um, but at least I have uh, some sort of an idea of when we're doing it and why we're doing it and how it fits into an overall program, I suppose. So I'm going to ask you and put my neck on the line. How would you change that if you were to change it? What would be your focus points and the questions that you would ask me? Um. I mean, I, th- I think the, the big thing is, is how the extensive stuff is, is the extensive stuff just purely kind of overcoming base work where it is just tall movement and it's at sub maximal capacity. How much of it is linear based uh, in comparison to multi-directional stuff. Um, and, you know, do, are you using, are you using some form of, you know, it could be very kind of extensive or rudimentary plyometrics. Is that something that they will use for every single pitch based warm up? You know, this, this is ways to like, this is ways in which I steal time when people say, Oh, this day I'll do like my rudimentary hop series or things that they've got from Altis or like from yeah. my stuff. I like to stuff. The matter whether it's a red, green or, or orange day, they'll always do light, base movement and that is a that's a base of landing pattern skills that come in that's a base for i think ankle kind of prehabilitational stuff if you mm-hmm. want to call it for it but just ankle pre- preparation it's for tendon resiliency stuff and and then i would look at okay now you can oppose your other stuff now you can look at more submaximal locomotive stuff as opposed to um maximal locomotive stuff whether it's you know up in the air whether it's for distance whether it's for speed or whatever um and yeah maybe maybe alternate how that might look so on a red day yeah so on a red day you might actually flip it on its head and do more yielded base landing and takeoff stuff um where there isn't such a hit on the lower leg and neuromuscular impact of things Mm -hmm. i think there's some value in that and you can actually build up slightly in terms of volume with that stuff which i think is really valuable um so yeah that was sorry that was a lot of questions in, in one no piece. it's it's yeah. great and in terms of i didn't really think of it in terms of where are we are we in a yielding are we tall or are we um dropping yeah. down into a deeper ranges because i'll be honest i hadn't come across your stuff until midway through the season so in keeping with your own principles i didn't think it was a good idea to <laughs> start well, implementing yeah, all absolutely don't 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 do it but, yeah yeah in terms of in terms of coaching and perspective i am i am a fan of a lot of variability from both providing athletes with a, a somewhat of a challenging environment also increasing focus prior to the session because we'd always do it in the warm-up as well as that uh they would hopefully have more enjoyment as a result of doing so and then i would usually split days up on pitch into a linear speed focus day and a change of direction focus day so on the linear focus day uh, we would be generally more linear or vertical um in our plyometric variations that we'd use but in the change of direction focus day then i would be moving in multiple different planes and providing them with different opportunities to do so because i'm using the plyos as 
a preparatory um, solution to the rest of the session, which is going to be more specific movements to the game, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, and I, do you know what? I'd actually, I'd also add to that in, in a unique way in which you can program with those things in mind as well, is that when you do your linear focus stuff, that's your intensive work and your multi-directional stuff becomes your extensive or your sub-maximal stuff because of the preference for direction of movement, the likelihood for you to do, you know, the, the highest neuromuscular demand and stuff multi-directional is probably a lot less than what it is when you're moving in a more linear fashion. So that as well is a nice split that you can go with. And it's, it's similar to how I'll work things. And it could be, you know, it, it could be, it could be split even further. And I presented some of this stuff as well at the weekend where it could be that you split acceleration based stuff with slower ground contact times, upright running with more faster overcoming ground contact times, and then tempo based stuff with real sub maximal based, just, you know, multi-directional biometrics. There's a million ways in which you can do it, but it's about finding what you think fits well to your group, I think, personally, and, and, and the schedule itself. I think like it's no coincidence that we both have similar ways of thinking about things. And I like what you said there as well, because our linear days would usually be our red days, I'd call them. And then I call our change of direction days more orange focused. Now that's not moving into moderate intensity style things. That's just the color coding that I give to the sports coaches to know what they should be doing on those days. Um, and I think that all of this stuff is probably coming from the fact that two of us are Charlie Francis fanboys and we've stolen a lot of things from him and he's had a high influence on our biases, I suppose, as coaches. Um, and I And I think that... Uh, maybe we need to get somebody into the conversation that's going to challenge both of us in regards <laughs> to that, other than we're just going to um, turn into a vacuum of congratulating each other on our fantastic systems. We're not being challenged. But I definitely see merit in that. And I think that is probably where I would fit it in in that specific scenario of Gaelic Games, because I know a lot of listeners are from a Gaelic Games background. But in relation then to a rugby context, I, I did want to ask you if you're familiar with the work that Care has done, Care Winham Flat, on um, specific plyometrics for development purposes uh, in rugby union based upon position, because he has used Bondarchuk's exercise classification model and moved from more um, extensive and general to more intensive and specific over time. Do you think that is something that would be beneficial in not just a rugby context, but maybe in um, an association association football perspective or a Gaelic games perspective based on positioning of the athlete? Now, I know that's a big endeavor to undertake, but is that something that would align with what you think? And do you think it would be beneficial to athletes to have an individualized approach to their plyometrics over the course of a season? Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've presented um my tiers within the Bondachuk classification mm -hmm. system well and I've done that I did that on strength coach networks uh level two and you know I took light and deep tier from from plus plus system and that was more general prep 
I t- and, you know, this is very generic in terms of, you know, you could be even more specific with it in terms of orientation of movement, in terms of position specific stuff. Um, but then more locomotive submaximal stuff in our medium tier would be more um, specific prep exercises. And then your uh, specific development exercises would be more ping or maximal based yeah. stuff on competitive movements on, you never, you know, it's the sports, the sport. Um, and I definitely think there is a place for it. I I would teach it in coach education. I won't necessarily put it out as just general programs for people to purchase because it's, it's not specific. general. Yeah, it's not general. It's very specific in in nature, and I think that it makes a lot of sense when you're, let's say, coaching a rugby prop as opposed to a winger. They are completely different beasts. Different sport. It literally is a different sport. And you, as a prop, you spend 90% of your life in an acceleration mechanic in slower ground contacts. And my, I was with my friend last night and he went to watch the Barbarians versus New Zealand. Mm. And he said, it's all like, I didn't know this, but the Barbar stuff is very, if there's a penalty, it's touch and go. And it's yeah. those moments of touch and go, but you give it to like a prop and then you, everyone's like, Whoa! everyone gets really excited that this prop's running at like, upright sprinting and they last for like 15 meters and then that's it (laughs) but and it's because of how specific their training is so yeah it becomes i think that you have to you have to at least bucket people you know train train the guys in in the in the forwards and train the backs maybe in different ways um and how you would then change things regarding to the Bondachuk system is you might have more deep tier stuff that's a little bit more specific. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. But if it's for an, a guy that lives on the wing, it's going to flip around and you're getting a lot more overcoming based stuff. Um, again, that, that flips on its head in terms of how much time does a, does a, a prop spend doing multi-directional movement? Probably none at all, apart from fo- linear forwards and back stuff. There's not a lot really, is there, in the grand scheme of things in comparison to, let's say, the directions and lines that... In comparison to, In comparison to. Obviously, they need that work, Mm. but if you're talking specificity and you're, you know, you're honing in at the top of that pyramid, the bang for their buck is straightforward power development at at deeper positions. So use those sort of movements that are going to give you that. But I think affording them the opportunities to develop the other capabilities, of you course. need less to get more because they're not exposed to it. And I yeah, think that's probably exactly. where I would stand on it is like some is always better than um, all or do just touch it, I suppose. Um, yeah, but anyway, yeah. great conversation. Oh, the phone is gone. All of a sudden I clapped and the phone fell off. Uh, Sorry. But uh, I just want to ask you quick for our questions before we finish. So the first one is proudest achievement to date. Oh, gee. <laughs> yeah, quick for our questions, not quick for our answers. Um, okay. Uh, I mean, my, my daughter's a pretty, it's been, a, it's been, you know, getting to a stage where we're like, blimey, I've actually raised this child. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a big one. Um, you know, I, on a small level, represented got to represent my country and as a as a jumper that's pretty special um but actually getting some getting little bits of feedback at the moment and and seeing some of the educational stuff that i've put forward is you know it it gives me a lot of that kind of athlete kind of feeling in me it's like oh actually that gives me 
gives me some motivation and, and a vibe to kind of move forward with things and, and keep churning stuff out other than thinking god this is tough <laughs> i like the way you term that though i like the way you, like i've never heard a frame like that the athlete feeling in me like that's what it is like as well when you're getting because early on that's how we um get the little kick of dopamine or, or serotonin is through achievement in that endeavor but then when the athlete retires, it can be hard to get the same feeling. But what you're saying is it kind of gets a similar feeling out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is awesome. But yeah. my next one is a, a specific athlete question. Who's your favorite athlete of all time? I'm, I'm just going to be biased towards high jumpers, unfortunately. No, I'm not. I'm, do you know what? I'm going to say I think Federer is up there as one of my favorites. Um I love to watch decathletes, um, especially and and heptathletes, um, but high jumpers Stefan Holm. If you if you don't know who he is, is uh, someone that's one eighty five tall and jumped two meters forty. It's Oof. quite have a bias over someone like that. And you, there are these videos online of him back in the day doing um, doing like five or six hurdles in a row over one eighty five, just. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Now, I might, I might arc you a little bit with this one, but is he kind of similar to yourself in that? Now, I'm talking spectrum here, not category, <laughs> categorization, but is he more tendon driven, would you say, than muscular driven? Like he's a very short, sharp, explosive. Yeah. You athlete. know what? It's, it's funny you say that. And it's really interesting you say that because there's a great, Japanese TV program that did some research on him versus the guy that he lost to in the world champs, um, the the 2007 world championships. It was a guy called Donald Thomas, who's a Bahamian guy, and he'd been high jumping for nine months, and he came out and beat Stefan Holm, who was the reigning Olympic champion, European champion, and they looked at their anatomy and. They're very similar in terms of height, but in kind of um, an East African, like typical East African kind of anatomy, Donald Thomas, because I think that's in terms of his migration to ancestors across the Bahamas, I think it's East African, but he has a long Achilles, very, a bit slower on the ground, but has a really short calf and a long Achilles, whereas Holm, is the opposite he has a short achilles. but he has a short stiffer achilles they show yeah. you in the movement um and a, and a big fat calf um and 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 Soleil. so it obviously he's the tendon you know speed driven based animal for sure but it's interesting like when you've seen that stuff in relation to other high jumpers it's mm. like oh it's hard to say oh is he a tendon based athlete and i'm like yeah, well, yeah. Donald Thomas used his tendons really well, but just in a different way because he had a different anatomical structure. So it's it's quite cool to, to see that stuff anyway. But the yeah, guy, he, the guy with the long tendon though, does he still have a short contact type? Very short. Still, in relation to, obviously, in relation not to a general athlete, but in relation to other high jumpers. Uh or is it longer? It, it, his is longer than Stefan's. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But not too long. Again, jumped two meters, 38, 37, and yeah. But this just shows the value in not focusing on absolutes because we say tendon or muscle driven and we think 
uh, either thickness in the tendon or like a thick big muscle, whereas yeah. nobody was really going to think about the length of the tendon usually. Um, so there, there, there are more factors if we are to focus on tendon versus muscle, which is why I always talk about a spectrum as opposed to like boxes to categorize athletes in, even though sometimes you have to put them in a box if you're going to coach them, which is different. <laughs> but second last question, what's the biggest thing you've learned in the last 12 months? How impatient I am <laughs> having a daughter. <laughs> I don't envy you there. Um, yeah. The final one then is what would you tell your 18 year old self? Um, make sure to listen to your coach more than you already are. And my coach, my coach is now is my mentor that yeah. I've had 14 years. So, yeah. I was going to ask you if there's any chance you think you could get Eric to present at any seminar or has that ship sailed? There, there is potential. And, and the cogs in my head are working about it, working about, yeah, trying to figure something out. And I, yeah, I would love to to get him to do that. He's presented at hundreds in the past um, and I've been present to a few of them and I've loved them. So, yeah, it's uh, something in the pipeline and we'll, we will get there, whether it's in the next year or so. Potential is, is definitely there and it's exciting. So, Listen to your coaches and mentors, kids. That's the overall message. Matt. Thanks a million. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Cheers for having me on. Thanks.